Thanks, Brad. Appreciate it. I just want to say thank you to Josh for giving me the opportunity to preach this morning. I don't take it lightly to uh, really bring you guys the word this morning. And I also want to say thank you that he saw fit that for my first time preaching, uh, he thought it perfect that I would talk about circumcision. So <laughs> I really appreciate you punting that one downfield for me. And uh, we'll get started. Uh, guys, when you think of holiness today, as you sit in this room, what images come into your mind? I'm talking specifically how it relates to people. Is there a physical characteristic or that you either consciously or subconsciously attribute to a person being holy or a group of people as being good? If we're being honest, we all have moments in our lives where we just look at someone or a group of people and think to ourselves, those people are good or those people are clearly bad or sinful or whatever. You can fill in the blank. I mean, we do this, right? Perhaps you've walked through a monastery and thought to yourself, looked around and like, wow, these people are really good people. Maybe you went to that Young Life or NABS conference or sat through that Bible class or went to that Christian concert, looked around and been like, wow, these people are morally superior. These are, look at all these good people I'm surrounded by. This is fantastic. Conversely, maybe you've been to that Screamo metal concert or that rap concert or that one frat party, perhaps. Or maybe you've even visited a prison, but amongst all those tattooed inmates, looked around and be like, these people are not good. These people are bad people. Not good at all. Feels kind of weird being here, actually. You ever done something like that? Taken a person's outward appearance and immediately ascribed holiness or goodness or lack thereof simply because of how they dress or what color their hair is or whatever? I'll start my story off by telling you that growing up, tattoos both in my church and in my family, were taboo. Tattoos were bad. If you got a tattoo, you were a rebel. You were a wayward soul who had given himself or herself over to the ways of the world. You were a bad person. Okay? This is the connotation I had about tattoos. Now, look, please, don't email me. Don't come to me after the service. I got one now. Look, okay? We're good. Deep breaths. I'm just setting up the story. Okay? It was about four or five years ago now, my family and I were living in Albany, and we decided to put Landon in his first ever swim lesson here in town, here at Osborne Aquatic Center. Of course, Landon is very young. He's about three, and so it was, was one of those group lessons, you know, where the parents got in the pool with their kids, and the instructor kind of just instructed everyone, the whole group as a whole. I remember vividly getting into the pool, and I look up, and here's this, like, adorable little girl. And I mean, like, super adorable, like, beyond cute, Okay walking hand-in-hand hand with what I assumed was her dad as they entered the pool. Now, me being the sinful man that I am, that's really the only reason I have to give you as to why I thought what I thought. But immediately, before I could even process what I was thinking, I looked at this guy, adorable little girl, this guy. He had kind of longer hair. His beard was kind of unkept. And the kicker, multiple tattoos. That's right. Some on his chest, some on his legs. And here he was with this adorable little girl. I remember thinking about this. I remember thinking, I mean, in my head, just this poor little girl. <laughs> I bet this guy doesn't know the first thing about what it means to be a dad. I mean, can you believe this? I'm just being honest. I mean, that's what went through my head in the first split seconds that I laid eyes on this guy. Never seen him before in my life. And instantly, thankfully, I felt this Holy Spirit rebuke. Like, you know, how dare you think like that about this guy? You don't even know him. Look, he's brought his little girl here. 
swim lessons, same as you did with your son. You just made a snap judgment about this guy, about his holiness, about his character based on nothing but outward appearance. That was pretty wicked, about his goodness. Man, Lord, you're right. I mean, I, I remember repenting right there in the pool as I floated about with Landon and my son. Of course, I didn't say anything to this man, this man who was just there to, to take his daughter to a swim lesson, not thinking he was also going to be judged by a total stranger based on nothing but outward appearance and what my standard of goodness or holiness looked like, right? I'd never laid eyes on this guy before in my life. Well, we finished out the next five or six weeks of the class or so, and that was that. So I thought, through different circumstances over the course of that next year, my wife and I began to visit other churches in the area, and we were invited by our neighbors, Andy and Kayla Crow. thank you, by the way, if you're here, to visit their church called The Branch. I remember our first Sunday over at Central Park South. We sat and we listened to Pastor Josh preach. I remember thinking, I'm like, man, that guy looks familiar, but I just couldn't place him. Afterwards, I remember getting in the car with my wife and what was now our two sons. We were talking about the service. I thought, man, that dude was legit. It was so good, like how he just exposited the scripture, doctrinally sound, gospel-centered. It was awesome, right? Convicting. And then it hit me like a punch in the gut. Remember how just last year I was judging Josh in the pool with his daughter Eden, (laughs) who I had never met that day at swim class. Pastor Josh, right? If I ever had any doubt before that God has a sense of humor, it was laid to rest right there. (laughs) God's probably just sitting back and, huh, the guy you just judged will literally become one of your dearest friends. And you're actually going to do ministry alongside him in the years to come. You see, Josh was marked. He was marked with multiple tattoos, and therefore, in my mind, that meant he was a bad guy or a subpar father or whatever. Well, turns out I couldn't have been more wrong. I've since watched his life, and let me tell you, nothing could be further from the truth, right? Eden is still as adorable as ever, by the way. (laughs) And, And since when has any physical mark been indicative of a person's goodness or holiness? I mean, I don't have the authority to look at Josh's tattoos or anyone's outside exterior mark, for that matter, and declare that makes them a bad person or that makes them a good person. Does anyone have that kind of authority? Can anyone declare that a physical mark on a person's body ascribes holiness? Today we're going to unpack a a portion of Scripture where we see God exercise his authority over created human beings, and he actually comes to a specific people, and he's going to mark them. He's going to mark their physical bodies, but unlike tattoos, this mark would be given to a specific people for a specific purpose with a very specific meaning. God is going to declare to the world that this mark is to signify that the people who bear this mark, the mark of circumcision, were chosen by God to be holy and set apart people. To be circumcised signified to the world that you were his, meaning that you belonged to God, and that the God of the universe was yours. God's people looked different. They had a new mark. If you'll turn with me to Genesis 17, 1 through 14, I'm going to read this passage for us. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, 
and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken the covenant. We just saw in this passage that God is bringing an external marking to his people to show the world that he was theirs and they were his. But this mark was pointing to something much deeper than simply outward appearance modification. This mark was a new covenant for God's people, and it signified that they belonged to him. A covenant is important because in Scripture, a covenant is the basic structure of the relationship that God has established with his people. A covenant is God's DTR moment with us, so to speak, as human beings. It's how he defines the relationship he's going to have with us. Now, while there are similarities between a covenant and a contract, there are also important differences. In a contract, you typically have equal parties coming to the table, and so there would be a negotiation of the terms. I don't agree to that. I don't like that. Change this. Okay, you agree. Yes, I do. Let's both sign. That's a contract. A covenant, however, is rarely made between equals. The terms are dictated to the conquered king by the conquering king with the conquered king having no right or say in the terms. There is no negotiation. Once the terms of a covenant are given, the covenant is sealed by the shedding of blood. And in order for the covenant to be amended or changed, there was a requirement that more blood would need to be shed. Another sacrifice. So now in ancient Bible times, when a covenant was established, there were five different elements that needed to be present or established by the king doing the covenanting. So this mark of circumcision would constantly be representing that these five things, these five points were now in effect and they had taken place. So five points, and for you, for you note takers, they all begin with R. You're welcome. Number one, the first element needed in the covenant was the covenant needed to state the recipients of the covenant. The recipients of the covenant. Number two, second element to be stated was the reason the king deserved loyalty. So the reason the king deserved loyalty. That is why the recipients should obey. Number three are the requirements of the covenant. The requirements of the covenant. Number four are the rewards of the covenant. Rewards. And number five are the ramifications for disobedience. Ramifications for disobedience. So number one, first element that must be clearly stated are the recipients of the covenant. We see in our passage that God chose Abram and his offspring to be the recipients of this particular covenant. 
Look at verse 2. It says that I, God, may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. We pick it up again in verse 7. It says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So we have God clearly defining and choosing who it was he was going to be covenanting with, and it was a guy by the name of Abram and his descendants. God just comes to Abram in our chapter, <coughs> excuse me, comes to Abram in our chapter and speaks specifically to Abram and says, I am going to covenant with you and your descendants. No one else. You. Number two, second element that must be stated is the reason the person should submit to or obey the covenant. Why is God justified in dictating this covenant to Abram? Why should Abram go along with the covenant? Let's go back to the second part of verse 1. I am El Shaddai, translated meaning God Almighty. So right out of the gate, we see God establishing his rule and authority by calling himself El Shaddai. Names have enormous implications and meaning in biblical times, and this particular name is used 48 times in the Old Testament. And it signifies God's universal dominion over everything. He's establishing who he is and his authority to Abram so that, hopefully, Abram will have the appropriate response. I was a police officer here in town for about six years. As a cop, you got to do some pretty cool things, some other not-so-cool things. And uh, because I worked graveyard for about 90% of the time, one of the not-so-cool things that I was responsible for doing was bar checks. So I would go to places like the Peacock and Impulse and actually walk through the bar area and check on people, make sure everyone was behaving themselves, you know, no 12-year-olds were drinking, that sort of thing. Remember one night, it was either Friday or Saturday night, I parked my patrol car in the parking lot of Impulse. I make my way upstairs. And because I'm sure none of you in this room have ever been to Impulse, I'm sure you have no idea what it's like. But there are a ton of people packed in there like sardines on Friday and Saturday nights. And it's extremely difficult to walk through the bar area because just so many people, and it's in the back center portion of the space, which is where all the dancing is going on. So I'm in my uniform, it's super hot, going through the bar, and I get to this guy, and he's got his back to me, and he's dancing with some girl. And I can't go around because there's so many people. can't even say excuse me because he probably wouldn't hear me. So I just lightly tap him on the shoulder, you know, give him one of these, like, excuse me, please move, you know. Where the guy doesn't even turn around. He just kind of tilts his head back, looks up at me, and gives me one of these, and just keeps on dancing. <laughs> so what do I do? I do what made sense to me at the time, because it's so hot in there. I just wanted to get out of there. I was in a rush. Candidly, probably wasn't the most Christ-like thing to do. Wasn't my finest moment, I admit but I was a little less polite in my second response. Tapped him a little harder. <laughs> Move. <laughs> Remember the guy, he just takes one step forward, he turns around with his fists up like he's ready to throw down right in the middle of the bar. And so I take my flashlight and I just turn it towards me and I, I click it on and I light up my uniform. And his eyes just go, and his hands go from this to this. <laughs> and he just backs up while apologizing. I'm so sorry. So sorry, I'm so sorry. Right? You see, knowing who I was and my authority mattered to that guy. It changed his response. So God establishes who he is to Abram, and we see his response in verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. 
He didn't merely put his hands up. No, he showed a posture that still today shows ultimate submission. He falls on his face and he just prostrates himself before God Almighty. Nothing could be more appropriate. And there's another reason given in our chapter 2, a demonstration of sorts as to why Abram will be adhering to this covenant. You see, names, not only do they have significant meaning, but in this particular time, to name someone showed that the person doing the naming had authority or is claiming authority over the person being named. It's like that today too, right? As parents, Brittany and I had authority to name our sons, Landon and Grayson. One of you showed up on the day my son was born and walked in the living room and said, his name shall be Bartholomew. We look at you like you were crazy, right? Because you don't have the authority to name him. At best, you might be able to offer a suggestion, depending on how close of friends we were, but you would never just walk in and be like, his name is such and such. But God does that, right? Let's look at verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, which Abraham is translated to mean father of many nations. So God is not only demonstrating his authority over Abram to now change his name to Abraham, but he's chosen a name that will actually hearken not just himself, but all his future descendants back to the covenant itself. God's covenant promise to Abraham to make him the father of a multitude of nations. So whenever his descendants or even us today say or look at the name Abraham, we're supposed to remember, ah, yes, father of many nations. Covenant promise given to Abraham by God. Third element needs to be present are the requirements of the covenant. Go back to the second part of verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So here God is saying to Abram, you are to be blameless, to be holy, and you are to keep my covenant. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and there shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And it goes on in verse 12 to say this to be all males on the eighth day of their birth, as well as anyone born in their house, meaning their tribe, and anyone bought with their money. God's people, God's chosen people from this day forward would look different. God is now marking his people by changing their physical appearance as the sign that they now belong to him. They will now be a people marked by circumcision. So can we just stop here for a second and be real? If you're a dude and you're Abraham, everything has sounded awesome until we get right here. Remember, Abraham is 99 years old. It's 99. Isn't it a little late in the game to be making modifications? <laughs> I mean, if I was Abraham, I might have said something like, um, are you sure we can't, like, just discuss this portion of a covenant? Like, does it have to be me taking a knife to my nether regions? Can't we just say, like, we can't eat Brussels sprouts anymore or something? Like, why this? Why does God choose circumcision of the flesh as the sign that they are to be a holy set-apart people? Because this portion of Scripture is dealing with the second aspect of God's covenant with Abraham. In chapter 15, we saw that God was stressing the promise of land. And here in chapter 17, we see God stressing the promise of a great abundance of descendants. It is two sides of the same transaction between God and his people. Okay, but why just men then? What about the women? Aren't they part of God's chosen people as well? This is another reason why God chose this specifically, the removing of the foreskin as the sign that God had covenanted to Abraham many descendants. One commentary I read said that God was consecrating the organ of procreation unto himself. 
God was drawing attention to the concept of seed or offspring, recalling the importance of the seed of a woman. So every person from this day forward conceived within God's chosen people from the entire lineage of Abraham would have been done so under this banner, this mark of circumcision. And circumcision during the time of Abraham wasn't something new. It was widespread in the Near East among modern Arabs at that time, and it was traditionally used to mark the threshold of manhood. But now God was changing his meaning to signify this new covenant between God, Abraham, and his chosen people. No longer was circumcision merely a sign that you would become a man. No, now it was much more significant. It was now a special mark that signified you were now part of God's chosen people, conceived with a holy body, if you will. You were now committed to God, and the cutting of the flesh symbolized you were dead to your old self. You were now cut out from the world, and you were bound to the one true God. Number four. Fourth element needs to be clearly stated are the rewards of the covenant. Talked about Abraham being the father of many nations, but let's look again at verse six. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is huge. This is an everlasting covenant. God is saying he's going to give Abraham land that will be his and his descendants forever. And not just land and descendants, but God is covenanting himself. Do you see that? I will be their God. But I pray we begin to understand today, we look at this passage, just how amazing and majestic this promise is. The greatest thing God could ever do for his people is give them himself. This is huge. But what happens if God's people disobey him? And they say, mm, not doing that. I'm not going to circumcise myself or my offspring. Final element we see in our chapter are the ramifications for disobedience. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. They will be isolated. Okay, I don't understand. You just said this covenant was an everlasting covenant. So what is this saying? That I need to be circumcised? In order for me to be a part of God's chosen people, I need to go home and have surgery? That everyone who hasn't been circumcised has been cut off from God and are not isolated? No. No, it's not saying that. This covenant, you see, may have consecrated the body to God, but it failed to consecrate what was needed most. The heart. Circumcision of the flesh was and is inadequate to please God. It was never the end game. It was yet another sign in the grand design. You see, this mark may have changed the outward appearance of God's people, but it did, it did nothing to bring about true heart change. How could it? I wonder, church, what are we marked by? Have our hearts been changed by Christ? Have they been changed by what he's done for us in the gospel? When people watch our lives, do we look different than the rest of the world? You see, circumcision was an outward reality that could never speak to what was truly going on in the hearts of God's people. So my question for us this morning is, do we just adhere to the letter, to the law, and put all our effort into cleaning the outside of the cup, but neglect loving Jesus? 
If we aren't careful, brothers and sisters, it will be our behavior that keeps us warm at night and not our Savior Jesus, who has lavished his grace on us and by his grace sustains us and causes us to walk in newness of life. The people are watching. They are watching to see if we possess something different than the rest of the world. May it never be said of us that we were so busy white-knuckling our way to moral superiority and outward legalistic behaviors that we never tasted the life-changing rest offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world is watching. What are we marked by? You see, God has always desired for our hearts to be consecrated to him. Only then will the mark of God go beyond outward physical appearance and cause us to not just look different, but live different. Only then can we obey him, but not as a people driven out of duty, driven out of a Holy Spirit-fueled love that flows from our miraculously transformed hearts. For us to truly be a holy people, we couldn't just change our outward appearance. We needed a new heart, new birth, new desires. Jeremiah 4.4, you don't need to turn there, but hopefully it will be on the screen. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Move the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Deuteronomy 10, 15 through 16 says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And Romans 2, 28 through 29 says this, For no one is a Jew, Jew here meaning part of God's covenant people, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So how is this possible? How can God require one mark for God's people to be set apart back then, but not require that same mark of circumcision for God's people today? We just said before, it was an everlasting covenant. The reason is, is because Christ completely fulfilled this covenant and he establishes a new one with his people. He established this new covenant the only way covenants can be established through the spilling of blood. But unlike what we saw in chapter 15, this is pointing us to a greater sacrifice than just animals. This would be established through the spilling of blood of none other than the Son of God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, God promised Abraham that kings would come from his line of descendants. And indeed, kings did come, but not just any king. The king of kings. Jesus is the greater Abraham. The greatest king who will bring his people true and lasting salvation. You see, where this covenant fails to consecrate the heart, Jesus Christ comes, and not only does he fulfill this covenant perfectly, but he goes beyond that. He makes a new covenant with us, his people. Jesus changes everything. No longer are the recipients of God's grace just for those who have been circumcised, but they are for all people who put their faith in Jesus. So if you are here this morning and you know you are living isolated from God, don't go to the hospital in search of surgery. You can come to the table and meet your Savior. Jesus literally became the reason for our justification before God. He's the reason we belong to God and he belongs to us, not some mark in our flesh. Jesus is the only requirement we now have as a people to be reconciled and consecrated to God. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. John 14, 6. 
We are set apart, finally given new hearts, new desires because of Jesus' work on the cross. It's because he sacrificed himself and used his blood to establish a new covenant that we are now heirs of Christ and brought into the faith family of God. Now in this new and better covenant that Jesus makes with us, it is no longer circumcision that declares to the world that we are his. No, the sign of this new covenant is baptism. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Please don't misunderstand. Baptism doesn't save you, but rather it is the new sign, a new mark under this new covenant that we are living under now as God's people. Baptism is now the declaration that we as God's people are commanded to make to the world that we are now committed to walking with God and his people. Baptism becomes the act that symbolizes as you go under the water that you have died to your old self and as you come out of the water have been raised to new life in him, in Christ. And much more could be said on the topic of baptism, but I want to encourage you today that if you've never been baptized and you are a follower of Jesus, I cannot stress the importance of baptism enough. It's not a suggestion in Scripture, brothers and sisters. It is a command. And so changed are our hearts as God's people that we long to follow his commands. And finally, Jesus is both the reward and the ramification of this new covenant. The consequences for not being circumcised was isolation. You were to be cut off from not just God's people, but God himself. The ramifications of our sin means we are to be literally cut off from God. We are to be isolated from the creator of all things, isolated from the source of everything good and holy and pure. God is holy. There is no sin in him. So holy is God and so heinous is our sin that God can't even be around it. Left to ourselves, guys, we are isolated from God forever, without hope. We are cut off, put outside the camp, alone. I pray this lands on you like it has on me this week. Jesus endured the ramification of our sin. Guys, Jesus was perfectly holy and had never experienced isolation from the Father. He willingly became a man. And he lived the perfect, sinless life that you and I could never live. And he died in our place. And as he hung on the cross, we get a glimpse of what true isolation looks like. The Son of God cries out to the Father, and for the first time in the history of the universe, Jesus is separated from the Father as the Father turns his back on the Son. And Jesus drinks the full cup of wrath on behalf of sinners to secure for us a new mark. A mark of true and lasting transformation. Guys, he was cut off. He was put outside the camp. Jesus Christ, the man who had done nothing wrong his whole life, looked at the Father and he said, me for them. Cut me off instead. Isolate me. I'll be alone. It's such a scandal when you think about it, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior of the world, who was with God in the beginning, the great I Am, offers us his sinless life as our reward. Our reward, instead of leaving us dead and isolated in our sin. He proved that he defeated sin and can offer us himself as the reward because he defeated sin and walked out of the grave three days later. Jesus offers us himself 
to us, to you today, as your reward. Our reward for literally doing nothing. We get him. We get to be reconciled to God, and we get to be with Jesus forever without fear of ever being cut off. We will never be isolated because Jesus was isolated for us. This is scandalous grace like the world has never seen, and this news changes everything. We are now people marked by incredible, undeserved, scandalously glorious grace. Guys, if that is our experience, that should, that should be an incredible witness to an ever-watching world. I close with a story. Dr. D.A. Carson is a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and there was a graduate student of his years ago named Dave Ward. Dave was described as being a rough jewel, a man with no tact, little polish, but daringly evangelistic. Dave was a man who loved Jesus deeply and walked with him boldly. Dave was in a campus Bible study with another friend of his, and it so happened that one evening, one of the students brought their non-Christian friend to the Bible study to speak with Dave. You see, Dave had a way of answering the hard questions and dealing with the most ardent of skeptics. Dave looked at this non-Christian newcomer and asked him, why have you come? The student replied, I come from a home that you people call liberal. We go to the United Church and we don't believe in things like the literal resurrection of Jesus. I mean, give me a break. The deity of Christ, that's a bit much. But my home was a good home. My parents love my sister and me. We are a really close family. We worship God. We do good things in our life and for the community. What do you think we've got? What do you think you've got that we don't have? For what seemed like two or three minutes, Dave looked at the student, and then he said, watch me. This other Dave said, I beg your pardon. Dave Ward repeated what he had just said and then explained, watch me. I've got an extra bed. Move in with me. Be my guest. I'll pay for the food. We go to your classes. Do whatever you have to do, but watch me. You watch me when I get up, when I interact with people, what I say, what moves me, what I live for, what I want in life. You watch me for the rest of the semester, and then you tell me at the end of it whether or not there's a difference. This Dave took, gave up on the offer, this offer to watch him, and watch him he did. They began to meet regularly, and the Lord drew that Dave to himself over the course of that semester. Today, that Dave is serving overseas as a medical missionary. So how are we doing, church? Fathers, do we have friends, other fathers in our workplace that we can look at and say, do you want to know what it looks like to be a dad? Watch me. Wives, do we have other married ladies in our lives that we can look at and say, you want to know what it looks like to love your husband? Watch me. Students, do we rub shoulders with people, other people at school? We can look in the eye and say, watch me. May we be a people who bear the mark of grace plainly, and may we be imitators of the Savior who died to consecrate and forever mark our simple hearts to the heart of God. May we be a people marked by grace. Let's rise to our feet, and may we have the appropriate response in light of what Jesus has done. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to teach it. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in this place, that your grace would be tangible, that you would convict, that you would shape people, God, that you would change us, that we would begin to truly grasp the depths of your love.
what it took for you, Jesus, to secure for us a new mark. That you would come for sinners like me, for other people in this room, that we might know you, that we might get to walk with you and have you change us, sanctify us, fully but surely, Father, into the image of your Son. We love you. We thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And as we